Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by the TCT content team. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Additive Insight Innovators on Innovators series. This time, we've paired Michael Hayes, a Boeing Technical Lead Engineer, with Scott Sevchak, the VP of Aerospace at Stratasys. Over the next 45 minutes, Hayes and Sevchak discuss their early experience with the 3D printing, the challenges Boeing faces in applying additive technology, and the increasingly apparent value of AM for manufacturing supply chains. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tstmagazine.com, where you can get your free print subscription to TST Magazine and get the biggest 3D printing news stories delivered straight to your inbox every week with our Additive Insight newsletter. I'll now leave you with two aerospace experts who begin by reflecting on a near 20-year relationship between their companies. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Good morning, Scott. Great. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I was just thinking about the fact that uh, I am just about to hit seven years uh, at Stratasys and thinking back to seven years ago, coming in the door into additive manufacturing for the first time. Uh, one of the first things I heard about was uh, the history with Boeing and uh, in particular, um, the, the relationship you had and the influence you had had uh, at Stratasys uh, at that point. So it's uh, fun to be having this conversation now and thinking back on that. It has been a, a, an interesting years. Is, I can't say it always has taken the road that I had always planned on that it would be taken, but it's been a, it's been a great slalom course of um, <laughs> entering through additive and in particular the FDM and uh, watching it grow from those early years. Uh, early on, I started working with Stratasys, I would say in 2002, I would say it was, and it was 2003. We really started having the conversations with the with the team up there. What were some of those first conversations, and and really, how did you make that connection initially? the 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 first connections, I can say, one of the main reasons we started me really getting involved with the the Stratasys side and FTM in general was the limitations that I saw coming out of us of. Uh, been with McDonnell Douglas Boeing now for almost 34 years. And the first half of my career has been structural design. And so when I entered over into it, what was then a RP, a rapid prototyping group back in whenever it was 2002, I saw the limitations of additive of, because all we really had then was stereolithography and, and selective laser sintering in, in, in the team then. And the limitations of the material, the limitations of the process, I thought this isn't really where I wanted to go as a, as a structural type person. I needed something, uh, my mantra had always become large, structural, multifunctional, and there was limitations in those processes. And then I learned about this thing called fused deposition modeling, the extrusion process. And that really uh, piqued my interest on the possibility of what could be done. So we went to a user group, I think you had your I don't know if it's the first one, it's the first one I knew about in 2003 up in downtown Minneapolis. And uh, it was going to start, I remember specifically, it was going to start on a Sunday. And me and a colleague flew up there uh, to Minneapolis on Saturday evening. Uh, when we arrived, uh, they had a room for my colleague, but they did not have a room for myself. They didn't have a reservation for me. So after much um, discussions back and forth, 
they offered me the uh, presidential suite of the hotel with a caveat. The caveat was there would be no bedrooms. And what they would do is roll me in a cot into there. And I said, I'll take it. So we grabbed the presidential, I grabbed the presidential suite, had my cot, uh, went down Sunday morning and um, had our little uh, first part of the, the events. Um, first thing I did Monday morning was run back down to the the clerk down on Monday morning to see if I could stay in that room so they wouldn't move me for the duration of the um, meeting because it was very enjoyable, except for the cot part. <laughs> but then Monday, we came into, that's when I, I learned of a new name down there that I hadn't heard. And his, the name was Scott Crump. And I realized that's the person I want to talk to. And so I found out Monday morning who he was, where he was. I went up to him and asked him if, um, told him who I was with and um, like to have a conversation and meet with him. And he said, sure. And so I said, how about we meet up in my, uh, meet up in my room? <laughs> because in the middle of this room was about a 12 foot conference room table looking out over downtown Minneapolis. And so we uh, went up to the presidential suite at uh, lunchtime and sat down up there at, president, at the conference room table. And uh, that's where we first had our conversations. But I recall Scott saying that uh, Boeing must have a lot of interest in FDM and additive to put you in a room like this. And I said, <laughs> I told him they do. Now, he didn't know that I had to pack all my suitcase and clothes and stuff them in the little kitchenette along with the cot and clean up the bathroom and everything else. But because we only, I only had the little metal section there, but that was the start of the relationship that uh, has been going on. And that's been the start of relationship with me and the team of, of Stratasys and, and really trying to drive additive in the additive industry, at least in the polymer and the composite side towards the large structural multifunctional uh, vision uh, and, and growing the space of it. But that was also a different realm, I think, for them entering into the aerospace side of things where my focus is and was then and still is today. Um, and so then I know they really, it was kind of eye-opening to them the requirements for additive in aerospace. And we kept telling them, well, if you can make it in aerospace, you can hit all the other industries as well, because our criteria is just going to be very high, very staunch on all how we're going to have to hold on to our processes and our specifications, everything that we do with these materials. Um, and so I know then they started going out and bringing in other people because they just did not have the uh, resources in-house of what that meant. Uh, and I believe, Scott, if I Recall right, that's about when you started entering in as well. You also came out of the aerospace industry, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely wasn't the first. There were a number of uh, aerospace people who joined before me, but uh, uh, it was around 2014. Uh, I had been working in aerospace uh, my entire career. That's where my education was and, and where my interests uh, had always lied. And uh, a good portion of my career at Lockheed. And then I was at what at the time was going from Goodrich to United Technologies, it's now part of Collins uh, Aviation, and this uh, um, job popped up at Stratasys uh, looking for someone in the aerospace industry to kind of serve in a translator role, like explain to the aerospace industry what it is that Stratasys had to offer, explain to Stratasys what it is that the aerospace industry was asking for, kind of translate those requirements. Uh, so that's uh, that's the opportunity that uh, that led me here uh, about seven years ago now. So it was uh, a very interesting coming to additive from aerospace because 
it's so massively different. I mean, company size, I've worked for 100,000, uh, 150, 200,000 people, uh, companies, uh, once UTC acquired Goodrich, uh, to this leader in, in additive manufacturing, which had maybe about 2,000 people at the time. So very different scale, very different uh, approach, uh, and really, uh, really interesting and exciting for me. So in that, having, you, having the, the aerospace background you were with the companies you were with and now that you are uh, I'll say you get to see a, a much broader base of of industry users outside aerospace but also within the aerospace I get rather limited in what I'm looking at specifically for my Boeing platforms but what do you see as the the needs or the inhibitors of the growth of additive within the, the aerospace that is a, I would say, a constantly evolving question. So even going back to when I was on the aerospace side, really before coming to Stratasys, um, the first time I saw additive, I was really not impressed. It was actually a uh, an FDM produced part off of Stratasys equipment, and um, a, a business development guy that uh, we worked with was showing off this. You know, little plastic model of uh, the products of the air data systems that uh, we produced. Um, and to me, it was this you know, flimsy piece of plastic that really served no purpose. I was very much in an engineering mindset and, and prototyping for me meant it had circuit cards. It was, uh, it was a functional product. And what's this thing? Yeah, it's a cutaway view. That's, that's cute. Now, uh, you know, let's move on. Uh, I later kind of recognized the value in something like that from a marketing standpoint, just looking at the internals of, uh, of something and being able to, uh, to describe physically. But from my engineering mindset, is, this brings me no value. Uh, yeah, 3D printing, that's cute. Um, I ran into two more, um, uh, I think, more impactful experiences as I went on there that started to show me that there was a stronger connection and that there were more needs to be met. So first it was actually using the same Stratasys piece of equipment, same uh, ABS plastic. Uh, we were working on a product that was going on a, a carbon fiber fuselage and we had no way of aligning the, the air data probe. So we had to come up with some sort of fixturing approach um, for alignment that didn't disrupt uh, the uh, uh, the structure we were working on. And we came up with a rather clever approach with uh, fixturing with ABS uh, plastic printed on a Stratasys piece of equipment. So I was like, okay, this is more interesting. Um, seeing that flexibility, seeing that we could do something different and unique, uh, that went a step further when I got involved in a uh, program uh, for an engine temperature sensor that uh, required a cast part and casting procurements take forever and this one had gotten screwed up so by the time I got involved in the project we were six eight months behind uh, there was no viable approach uh, in front of us for the casting and we were scrambling to figure out how we we made it to a test in about 16 weeks and then we came across the ability to print uh, a wax investment casting pattern and we immediately took nine weeks out of the schedule and we were kind of back in the bucket and we were figuring out how to move forward right. and at that point uh, we were having a huge debate with our customer uh, and this was we were several tiers down we were providing a sensor to a sensor harness that went into a higher assembly and all of this so we were really buried 
in the supply chain on this one. And our customer, even though we weren't even trying to print the part that was going on the engine, we were just trying to print a tool to produce the part. Um, there was a tremendous amount of pushback and skepticism about using additive at all in the process. And what I loved was maybe it was a year, year and a half after that, that GE story came out with the, um, the printed engine nozzle. It was for the exact same engine. So here on the exact same engine, they qualified uh, one of the first metal parts in production in aerospace uh, on the same engine that we were fighting to use a printed investment casting pattern. So I think that really uh, got me excited for one, that here we had new technologies and new approaches that could make a difference in aerospace. But on the other side of it, there were these massive, massive problems around getting the right technological fit and really that, that certification question and the ability to uh, find paths to convince a, a necessarily conservative industry that the value of the new technology wasn't outweighed by the hassle of bringing it on board. And I think that continues to be the case as we look around the industry is there's more and more technological fit as we bring in new technologies, especially as we bring in new materials and, and stabilize them. We still again and again really run into the biggest challenge being establishing that trust, uh, establishing the fact that this technology isn't just kind of the you know, hype and marketing that you still see a lot of, but there is a level of maturity and a level of performance now that can help us qualify these parts and, uh, and actually have customers see benefit from them. I agree with you and all, and all those statements. And, and then what I've experienced myself too is, is some of the early on, I'll say the rapid prototyping, uh, when people did put like a stereolithography or, or some other material base somewhere and it broke or something happened to it or they give it the old fashioned stress test by throwing it on the floor to see what happens to it. Um, it, it causes a prejudice and it actually makes it a little bit harder to overcome um, with, with data and, and showing that this is, there is viability to the process, there is viability to the materials. But that's, that's part of the great challenge of, of where we are today is uh, the, the processes and materials are getting to the point where you can use them reliably, safely, um, with good, you know, with with high high enough quality for what we what we're wanting to use it for, and provide value to our, in our case, our customers, but also down to our onto our shop floors and and uh, making things safer safer and easier for our mechanics as well. Uh, you know, trying to get into the the flight hardware side of it, where where ultimately we are trying to go, um, is a bit more of a challenge. And as you said necessarily so that we have to meet certain um, criteria before we'll ever get that far. But again, the prejudices have been, I see that as being um, something that sometimes has held us back a little bit, especially as people that come on board um, that hear about the bad, but don't always aren't well versed in it enough to know, uh, you know, really have a deep conversation to show here's where the issues are and where the issues are not. Um, one of the areas I, I was going to ask, this is kind of a general question, but as you start, you get into this, now the Stratasys role and you see, as you said, it's an ever-changing landscape with this. 
and you start hearing what the customer wants to go and what specifically the aerospace customer goes, how do you work it inside their your core competency versus what the your customers are, you know, the Boeings, the Lockheeds, the Northrop's, the Airbuses, everybody else. Uh, how do you work out? How do you include that into what you should be doing inside the walls of of uh, a company like Stratus's? That I think has evolved uh, as the company kind of grew up and matured, and I think maybe that's one of the big differences between some of the older, more established companies uh, versus the startups. When you're a startup, you are, all you've got is that core competency. You've got something novel, something unique that you're driving into the industry. Um, but I don't know, there's probably some kind of sports uh, analogy here, whether it's lawn bowling or curling or something, I don't know, but you throw something out there, um, but that needs to refine in time so and i think it comes back to how how your relationship started with stratasys as well stratasys had something out there had fdm at a technology that uh, can be you know very very simple or it can be very very repeatable there's a very long kind of wide uh, scale of what fdm is um, but Stratasys you know, invented it, Scott invented it, threw it out there, and, but to get better, to get into these more challenging applications, we have to take feedback. It's, you, know, you throw it out there, then you got to refine and get closer to where it actually needs to be as opposed to where you might have thought it needed to be. So I think coming in, uh, myself and others uh, for the aerospace industry, the company's done the same thing in the medical space, is take that technology, that, that core competency, and then learn from our customers and, customers and learn from that feedback to continue to refine it, really dial it in to meet the need. And I think as we go from prototyping to manufacturing, that's even more important because with prototyping, you can take a technology and kind of adapt to fit your purposes. But when it comes to manufacturing, ultimately the need of the application is gonna drive the requirements, whether that's the material requirements, the process requirements, any of that. So, so focusing on our core competency early is definitely the way to start. But uh, uh, the maturation process, I think, comes down to uh, listening to customers and, and and tailoring to meet their needs. If, if I can interrupt there, I know I, I got to witness or watch a little bit of Stratasys of the evolution of it. Um, not that. Yeah, I wasn't there at the beginning or, or a big part of Stratasys, but I got to see how they formed, I'll just say like a three-legged stool. And I'll kind of put you on the spot here a little bit because uh, you, Stratasys, they brought in the core competency of, of fused deposition modeling. They, and they had issues with material. So you have, to, you have to control your material because as we know in additive, it's a garbage in, garbage out process. If you got bad material, you're going to have a bad part. Um, not you don't necessarily get a good part by having good material, but you, you have to start with good, if not great material, if you're gonna at least get to a good part. So then you had to control your material. Then there's places nobody can go out and get FDM because there wasn't a supply base. So then you started up, you being against Stratus and started up a service as well. So you had formed this three-legged stool of, a, of the machine or the equipment, the material and the, and the, the services that go along with it of the machine and, and there. So you did kind of have to evolve, but I also know uh, that there's been a lot of, I'll say, I don't say criticism, but chiding of the control of the material on the Stratasys side. Um, and I'm sure 
you've probably heard it more than once when you visited conferences. And I have to say early on, um, and even today, I, I was I liked you having stress is having the control because Boeing, we you know, we have a relationship where I knew we could have great material and that gave us a competitive edge uh, on things. But at the same time, um, you want to grow your your opportunities. And sometimes you just being limited by the, the, the menu of materials that Stratasys offers is missing the boat on a number of other opportunities in other industries. So how does that fit in? I mean, how do you, eventually do you have to give that up and then go back to focusing on the core competency? Or? There's a, I would say an immense balancing act in that, that, uh, that um, I think you really capture pretty well. So historically, yeah, we have been focused on performance. That's kind of what sets Stratasys apart. We're not the $100, $200 kit FDM printer that you can put together and uh, on your own and then and play with where we're producing equipment that we're intending for manufacturing. So driving for high repeatability and performance. And because of the nature of the process with the material being so integrally linked, you develop your material properties while you're producing the part. Um, we have focused on very tight control and literal years of tuning and tweaking a material before we put it out to the market. Obviously, that is not something that uh, is good for scaling to the tens of thousands of different material formulations that are out there that might be the right fit for a specific product. So we've kind of focused narrow, gotten really good narrow, um, and had conversations with customers again and again that kind of walk both sides of that line. They'd love to have more materials. They'd love to have more control in being able to tune the process themselves. Uh, they'd like to be able to second source materials and so forth. Um, but at the same time, they want that performance and they want that lockdown control. So right. uh, for a long time, we've been trying to figure out how to, to, to balance that. And we've done some, I would say, pilots in that space. A couple of years ago, we were talking about partnership we set up with Solvay to, to work with a chemical company for the development of their material. Uh, we have uh, you know, probably about seven or eight years ago, we acquired a, a supplier of ours, a compounder, so that we could get deeper into the, um, uh, the, the tailoring of the materials itself. So we balanced all around that space, trying to figure out how we keep the performance, but really open up the, the, the aperture for the needs of our customers. Um, and I think we're, we're getting better at that. And as we've acquired some additional technologies here over the last year with um, our Neo SLA solution and our Origin DLP solution, both of those are coming in as open systems. So now we've got FDM where we're tight and closed down, probably just the same way, and SLA and DLP where we're coming in from an open standpoint. And we're having a lot of discussion internally on taking the best aspects of those processes in order to move forward. So. So no, I don't think it forces us to kind of retreat to a core competency and say, just we're just gonna focus on the, the equipment. Um, uh, I think it requires us to continue to evolve and back to the, your earlier question, just really continue to focus on what our customers need and how we can answer both of those needs, even if they seem a little contradictory in terms of both openness and, and control and performance. Today's 
episode is sponsored by Evolve Additive. I spoke to Director of Business Development, James Grimm, about their unique STEP technology. STEP technology has just hit the commercial market and it is something completely different. So what it stands for is Selective Thermoplastic Electrophotographic Process. What this really is, is a uh, a three-step process. Think of like industrial, uh, high volume 2D printing. And so what we've done is adapted that existing technology that's really proven and reliable from a great manufacturer, Kodak. And so we leverage their 2D printing and we create toners out of polymers, right? So thermoplastics. And once we've tonerized the thermoplastics, we can then use that printing technology and image thermoplastics in a similar way that that they were imaging ink toners onto paper, right? Through a really high-tech 3D printing process, uh, we can align those plastic images on top of one another. They get fused together under heat and pressure which is very similar to what's going on in in an injection molding machine. And so the net result is uh, very, very high resolution, very, very high detail, and a surface quality that is very similar to injection molding. And so what this allows us to do is really kind of poke into where injection molding currently has been uh, fulfilling manufacturing and with parts. And we, we are able to do this now with additive manufacturing and, and cut into what we kind of call our, our, our five pillars uh, of where our company stands on, right? And we want to deliver additive manufacturing that meets customers' needs for cost, a wide variety of materials, so real thermoplastic materials. We need to deliver parts that are of utmost quality, so it's very, you know, identical or better than injection molding quality and at a speed to meet high throughput. And we want it to be scalable, right? Our technology can grow and it's versatile, it really kind of breaks away from maybe a lot of the limitations of, of traditional injection molding. As we look towards AM for production, there's a lot of interest around the idea of the factory of the future. What's Evolve's take on how AM fits into that vision? The factory of the future is something that we really live and breathe every day at Evolve, right? Uh, Automated unloading and loading of our parts is built right into the machine. So no, no more trying to create some sort of crazy robotic arm integration. It's pretty straightforward with ours. And so we've designed the machine to work in in a factory setting right from the ground up. We've already built what we call Evolve factory software. And this allows you to really tap into all the data that is collected during the build process of our machine and leverage that for things like ERP systems or MES systems and really sort of integrate this machine in an automated fashion into your own uh, production scheduling, ordering, fulfillment, it's really designed right from right out of the gate to be play very friendly with all of these fantastic automation tools and AI tools and big data tools that are coming our way. And another trend that we're really seeing right now is conversations around the role of additive manufacturing on supply chain. Where does Evolve fit into that conversation? Product producers are looking at how do they manufacture closer to the point of purchase. So you can start doing things like part rev control at a central headquarters and you know you can print 
parts at high volume and high mix at specific sites around the world. And so rather than calling up your contract manufacturer, having them pull a, pull a tool off of a shelf and prep it for molding, this is just send the data to your SVP machine that's sitting at your, at your manufacturing facility and pressing print. For more information, visit evolveadditive.com. But Mike, you're asking way too many questions about Stratasys. We got to talk about Boeing. You're way more interested. <laughs> I know about Boeing. I'm I'm more curious about Stratasys. As you talked just a few minutes ago, you uh, talked about going towards production and that being uh, more of the intent. But the reality is, Boeing's been putting parts on an uh, aircraft for more than a decade. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those early applications, those early opportunities to, to kind of push boundaries and get into that space and what that's done to lay groundwork for uh, for where we want to go in the future. It has been, um, yes, uh, we have thousands, if not, you know, tens of thousands of, of parts literally flying um, across, you know, the breadth of our, our platforms. Um, and every one of them has, I'll say, a story behind it. You know, everyone is a, uh, it's not, I can say hardly any of them were an easy transition. Uh, they were always something that, that we were battling with, but it always kind of started with a, a need. And typically what, what Additive offered to us early on in our adoption of it was you were referring to earlier just how quickly things could turn around for the investment cast patterns. And that's kind of what we run into. We, um, I, in, the, in the cycle of, uh, of aircraft fabrication, you pretty start, you start with the big bone parts and that's where I resided in with the structural side of things. And then after that, then you have your systems designers come in and start stuffing it. And then after that, then you have your manufacturing engineers, how to plan it and get it all together. And then you need to start building the vehicle. Um, you want to get the, the big bone things ordered up first because they are long lead items. The issue is when you start running into problems, your schedules, the, the big bone and structural side starts to grow and grow. The schedule starts to slip a little bit and that compresses other areas mainly systems people and other manufacturers, they get under stress because your start date doesn't really want to move on your production side. And so all of a sudden you start running out of opportunity to manufacture things like environmental control system ducts, which require tooling. And the tooling lead time um, is, I'll say is what helped uh, the initial adoption of additive um, for some of our, early, our aircraft early on in the uh, 2000, early 2000s, because we basically were running out of time to go get the tools in order to meet the schedule to get the production started. And that's where we could really start. We saw the time savings. Of course, there was a lot of data we had to go and get quickly to verify that the, the materials and the process would, would not just be suitable, but would exceed the performance requirements of, of the applications. But that's how it was. It was the Necessity was this mother of invention to, to get it on. And that's where I've seen a lot of our additive um, transitions and, and replications of the technology is, is time, you know, being able to get something a little faster because it's additive is, you know, it's um, not an unknown that it is, there's an expense to it. It's not, uh, you can print anything and print it cheaply. There's, there's a, 
large cost to it and every part that goes flying has to meet a business case for us. Um, we are a business and ultimately you wanna make a, a profit on what you're doing. So it has to show a, a value at some point in time. And where we start seeing the issue is in the certification timeframe, you know, getting parts certified to verify that you have a, a stable repeatable process that you have a, a part that's the hundredth part you print is the same as the first part that you print. And how do you verify that? How do you do that? And there's a cost to all that. Um, in fact, that's one of the, uh, the big, in, um, I'll say inhibitors, but it would be a great enabler once we start really locking down those processes uh, as, as uh, Stratasys has done through the work at NIAR uh, and through the, the work that's being done with uh, uh, NAMI or, or America Makes. I really start to understand the process and lock it down so we can validate the parts are stable and repeatable, but it's, it takes time. It takes money. It takes energy to do that. Um, but that's also seeing that the, uh, I'll say the additive equipment suppliers are all being involved in it because they know that that, I believe they know that that's, they're going to have to have that. Uh, and so they are being heavily involved with the different research centers that we've been a part of. Um, which includes, uh, you know, stress has also been a part of the Direct Manufacturing Research Center over in Germany and the, the NAMI here in the U.S. and other ones as well. So um, it's been a, a great conversations, but sometimes a very heated conversations when we get in the room and say it's not good enough. Um, it, and then we're asked to quantify that. What does that mean? It's not good enough. Uh, what is good enough? And, you know, knowing that excellent and not get to the perfection part, but we need something as close to perfect as, as we can. But it's always a challenge, every part. That's a, a really interesting point with regard to the, the good enough. And I think that makes me want to ask the question. <laughs> it's a topic that you and I have, have covered a number of times. Um, and that's the, the polymer versus metal aspect. So certainly a lot of the times when we're looking at polymers, we're looking at some less critical applications. So we end up with a good enough that's achievable as opposed to uh, metals, which we of course see tremendous value in you know, applying additive there, but such a, uh, a higher bar because a, a good enough metal part, uh, you probably don't need metal for it. So um, what are your thoughts on that? And where do you see kind of the, the balance of focus and attention? there? The, the metal additive and polymer additive, uh, it's such a dichotomy. It's such a, 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 there's so many common things to them, but then there's, there's the, the differences are, is the, is the challenges. Um, where I see issues on the polymer side aren't necessarily the issues that I see on the metallic side. The, the, where I, the, the metallic is, as you were just saying, your, your criticality of your parts are increasing as if, you're, if I'm putting on a titanium part, there's a reason I'm putting on a titanium part. Um, if I'm gonna go to the expense of titanium, um, you know, there's a reason for that. And therefore uh, the criticality you, you need to meet and make sure you again, exceed uh, all the performance requirements of that part. And the confidence just isn't there for that right now because the, the issue being, uh, I've, had this conversation a couple of times where um, composite people, this might sound bad, but composite people are used to having defects in their part because composites are a, 
a, a material, as you said before, it's a combination of the material with the process is what sets your material properties. So you can get it to where you have little bits of uh, uh, voids, despawns, or other areas, and you can know how to detect it. And you can uh, do entire studies on the effects of the defects and, and what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. My metallic brethren uh, aren't so forgiving for having defects in their, in their forgings. Yes, they do have them there. Again, there's no such thing as perfection, but they're not used to that as much. And so when you're machining down a big forging, your properties were set early on. So now saying now you have a, a metallic structure similar to casting in that you have material and process setting your material properties, it's, it's a little harder for them to grasp to think that I might have voids in the middle of this and I can't tell. I don't know if I do or not. But I also point out that additive adds a, I'll say a third dimension because it's not just your material and your process set your material properties. It's your material and your process at the voxel level. Every single voxel inside that build has a different property than the one right next to it because it saw a different temperature. It saw a different, uh, you know, um, something that helps set the change the property of it. Now it might be, it's very minute in the areas, but at the same time, it's not the same. And so how do you predict that, what that is? How do I know that the hundredth metallic part that I printed is the same as the first metallic part? And maybe it was in a different machine, maybe it was in a different, with a different laser, maybe it was with a different something. But even if everything is all the same, they still are a little bit different. Uh, because your laser power varies, your glass, or if you look at different other processes besides laser, but the energy changed during that time. So getting the confidence that you know what you have at the end is, is the, the biggest hurdle that we have to really embrace the metal side and, and really take advantage of metal additive. Because what I see is that we don't have we're not really getting to take the full advantage of additive because we have to force upon uh, not having the full confidence. We, we put knockdowns into our analysis. We basically say we don't trust this enough. So therefore we're going to boost our confidence by uh, knocking down our properties by a certain percentage, relatively large percentage, which therefore you're not seeing uh, taking full advantage of additive in its weight or its performance because of the confidence variation. So the metal side is, is challenged in that regard because of the, the, the knockdowns that they're gonna to have to see in order and then not be able to take, like I said, get the full advantage of additive um, and, and polymer as well. I mean, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're not getting full performance out of the polymer parts either because we just take our, uh, you know, you take your low, your low property values and size for that. And therefore right. your parts are really going to be heavier because ultimately right now we don't want additive to, to fail. You don't want that black eye because uh, it continues to set the prejudice. So, uh, you know, we do not want, we don't want any of our platforms to fail, but at the same time, we don't want additive to be a part of any, any failure as well. Even if it's a minute light switch that has no criticality at all, we don't want to see a crack in that part. So we're going to design it. So over the life of that part, it's not going to crack because we're trying to prove out the, the, the process. From thinking about you know, the maturation of the technology and the, the history that we've had advancing polymer and trying to reduce those knockdowns in polymer, 
um, and looking at having to continue to work on that on the metal side as well. Um, that's uh, that's going to continue to take time, but at the same time as we're maturing these technologies that are out there, there continues to be new needs, new I think ideas from uh, from the industry in terms of uh, what we could do with the technology, as well as uh, uh, what uh, new ideas from our uh, <clears throat> our customers in terms of what they want to do with the technology. So. Uh, where do you see uh, us going? Where do you see as a aerospace additive you know, segment of the industry, where do you see uh, uh, the ball moving towards? Uh, I, I think it's going to keep heading, I won't say the way it's going. Everybody's kind of doing what they need to have done and, and doing a great job with it. Where, where I saw one of the, I'll say a lesson even from last year, um, and, and Stratos is a big part of it, uh, America Makes and others were as well, was during the, um, the, the, the pandemic issues and the, the medical equipment side of things, uh, people came along and started printing uh, the face shields and other medical equipment. And I, I, I know people can question the, the validity of how, you know, the cost of the face shields and all the other parts of the face shields, but they, they provided face shields, I'm just using face shields as one of the examples, um, they provided them. They had them there, and it and it displayed um, or demonstrated, I should say, the value of additive with its distributed supply chain, where everybody could start flipping on, and all of a sudden they started. Everybody's making these kind of face shields. the The issue being, one thing it did demonstrate also was that you needed uh, a, the standards, you know, so that the face shields were relatively the same or could be used uh, uh, interchangeably. So where I kind of see it moving is that people are going to continue using it for what they need to go use it for. But at the same time, I'll see the, uh, the ANSI's, the ASTM's coming on board and really starting to set the standards uh, of what the industry needs to be. And you'll see more and more of these kind of um, uh, distributed supply chains where you can turn on a whole group of people all at once and get something relatively fast and, and meet either emergency needs or just any general consumer type needs. And I, I see more and more of that coming on board, especially as they become more uh, understood. Uh, I'll say a little less expensive in, in the materials and, and the equipment and um, possibly the post process and it goes along with it and adds the cost to it. So the standards of that. And, and I'd be curious, is, are, is, are you seeing that as well? When you start looking at it, are you are you seeing people wanting to say, hey, come together for the greater good of additive um, and help us set the standards for the additive? Is that, are you seeing that currently or? Well, I think the standards activity really started before the pandemic. Um, it so did, yeah. The work we had done, for example, with Nair that led then to an SAE spec, AMS 7100 that's out now. Um, that uh, that kind of predated the uh, the pandemic, so I think there was always uh, that need known that we had to get to the point where it become became a standard. What I saw, and actually, uh, I had a conversation. It was someone within Boeing procurement that uh, really um, uh, I think captured the impact of the pandemic uh, very well for me. And then this person in procurement had no experience with additive prior to having to be involved with sourcing tens of thousands or producing tens of thousands of face shields for the government. 
And um, they, the kind of gut reaction was a great analogy. They said, well, my background is an engineer and I think of manufacturing as a, a uh, almost a hydraulic motor. It takes time to, to build up to speed, but uh, it has immense power. Uh, additive isn't that. Uh, additive is more like an electric motor. Uh, you flip a switch and suddenly you have capacity and uh, you can flip the switch and turn it on, turn it off and change very quickly. And it's never going right. to be powerful as that hydraulic motor of, of traditional manufacturing, but it gives you this immense flexibility and, and yeah. ability to kind of do something different. So aerospace isn't known as a, a nimble industry, generally speaking, <laughs> <laughs> maybe another statement there, but uh, over the course of a weekend, a company like Boeing switched in from producing, you know, fixtures for uh, assembly of aircraft to producing uh, tens of thousands of face shields. And then right. when you know, the need had moved on or the tooling was now there to injection mold those parts uh, more cheaply, then they could stop and go back to doing something different. So I think what it did in that regard is open eyes of maybe the unaware or the skeptical that, hey, there's some value here from a, a supply chain standpoint that maybe we weren't giving it the credit it deserved. Yeah, and that's a valid point. The flexibility of additive, uh, also you get into the supply chain, you you have a machine now um, that can do things, all sorts of things. They can make your little trinkets and little model desktop models. They can turn around and make a, a, a qualified shop tool. Uh, they can then turn around and make a part that's going to go fly on a, uh, you know, a commercial aircraft out of the same machine. And that is a, that is a, challenge. That's something that's, that uh, can be a struggle. But once you can embrace that, um, I think it does kind of open up the opportunities But uh, for the suppliers, but also for the, uh, uh, the aircraft OEMs as well. This yeah. And really actually, I'd say it goes even, sorry, I, I was no. thinking it even goes beyond, um, you know, supply chain and OEMs, but um, we see kind of the operators in the aftermarket uh, looking at the technology in a whole nother way as well. Um, I remember conversations going back a couple of years where uh, I was a business jet manufacturer that uh, shared that they had billions of dollars in inventory stationed around the world so that a demanding client could get a part very quickly and wasn't going to get hung up at customs. And so as a result, I mean, they had this distributed inventory that was a nightmare because the parts were never in the right spot. Um, they always had either too many or too few. Um, you never could plan that perfectly. And it was always just an attempt to get as good as you could. And now as the technologies mature, uh, the big question for them is, can I place manufacturing capability um, out in the field? Can I get more distributed in um, my manufacturing capability and supply virtually as opposed to trying to stock uh, a gas at the right number of parts all over the place? And uh, I think there is definite uh, opportunity in that. I think it's going in a good direction. Uh, but it's highlighting, it's coming back to that certification question, because now you've got um, these operators and these sustainers that were never manufacturers before. They've never uh -huh. produced a part and had to go certify it. They bought a part from a tier one, tier two, uh, PMA, a provider, and they were buying these parts and they were very, very good at managing logistics. But now they're trying to push so far forward in the, um, uh, in the kind of sustainment stream that they have to suddenly figure out how to get good at qualifying parts with airworthiness authorities who are just starting to get comfortable with the technology. 
that is definitely the challenge. We we kind of early on was we learned kind of the hard way that it is much easier to train an aerospace aerospace supplier in additive than it is to train an additive supplier into aerospace requirements. Um, <laughs> there's so much more paperwork uh, involved, and especially I've, I've had the opportunity. Uh, I do have flight parts on space vehicles, cargo vehicles, commercial vehicles, rotorcraft, fighter craft, ground ground vehicles and maritime vehicles. And so I've got to deal with all the different um, certification processes and the people. And what what you learn basically is that it's a, it is really a, about a relationship having with them, a trusting relationship to, to know that the person who has to sign off on this trusts you, trusts your company, trusts the data that it generated and trusts the testing that you're doing is going to um, validate uh, you know, the, what that part is going to see in service. Um, and it is building up that relationship. And, and, uh, and, and so, it, yeah. And so getting all the different suppliers on board and all the different uh, airworthiness requirements or, or, or uh, uh, criticalities lined up is a, is a challenge, but uh, it's a, I'll say it's a welcoming challenge. It's been, a, it's been a, a fun ride as I don't think the ride's over, but I've been, very thankful to Boeing for the opportunity to run with additive manufacturing, additive technology for so many years. Uh, they've been a great company to me and a number of other uh, people to pursue this technology and, and do what we can to improve it for, for our platforms and for the additive industry and for the nation and for the world to, to make a better, make everything better. Absolutely. And I, I got to say, Stratasys is also very thankful to Boeing. I certainly don't think that uh, we would have gone as deep or as fast uh, as we have into aerospace and, and been successful the way we are without uh, Boeing and you personally uh, taking the, uh, the time to help us kind of reposition that, that focus and, and take FDM and, and steer it towards uh, its potential within aerospace. So that's been, uh, like you said, incredibly fun. Uh, I don't think you get too many opportunities to be part of uh, creation of new technology that can have the kind of impact uh, additive can. And uh, we always struggle with that balance of hype versus reality. There continues to be a lot of excitement and new technologies popping up, new materials popping up, and all of this stuff that gets a lot of attention. Uh, and then behind the scenes, there's literal decades of work to mature technologies for the reality of additive and, and being able to do the things that, uh, that all that hype promises. Mm -hmm.